Hi, it's David Woodwell with another installment of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council's podcast, Pennsylvania Legacies, talking with the people who make and shape and interact with nature and conservation and environmental issues in Pennsylvania. And today, I'm very happy to have with us Carol Collier, who is the Senior Advisor for Watershed Policy and something. And water management. And management at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. It is a wonderfully long title. Carol is a longtime partner in front of PEX, having been on the board at one time in the past, and also having been the executive director of the Delaware River Basin Commission, really responsible for the health and welfare of an amazing river and watershed stretching eastern Pennsylvania as well as New York and New Jersey. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Our pleasure to have you. So a lot of what you have done and continue to do focuses on this river known as the Delaware. What is, what's so special about the Delaware? Ah, topic I love to talk about. You know, the Delaware is our backyard river. So many things people think about going to the shore, but, you know, right here in Philadelphia, we have a river that is undammed, longest undammed river east of the Mississippi. Incredible recreation resource, uh, both in the tidal area that we think of in Philadelphia, but also in the non-tidal area all the way up to New York State. But at the same time, it's a working river, providing water to over 15 million people um, from New York City all the way down. But also, you know, you look out on the uh, the river here in Philadelphia, and it's a major navigation center and a major uh, industry economic center. That's, and for a long time, you were sort of the boss of the Delaware in some ways. Because, <laughs> I mean, DRBC, that's, you know, permit control of withdrawals and water use and everything. That's that's quite a spot. I, well, you know, I, I grew up a, a river rat. I, I grew up at the shore, and water has always been my, my soft spot. So when I had this opportunity to uh, to lead the Delaware River Basin Commission, it was it was just a great charge. And, of course, I'm not, I wasn't the leader. The, there are five commissioners the governors of the four basin states, and a general in the Corps of Engineers who represents the president. So my job was to get the five of them all on the same agenda, which was <laughs> quite a challenge. Uh, but really some, some good things uh, came out of it. And uh, you're right, DRBC has a lot of authority from planning and management to, to regulatory, both water quality and water quantity. But I think one of the most important roles is just to get people around the table and being a forum for adaptation. So as the science changes, as policy changes, politics changes, we have a place where we can bring the decision makers together and reevaluate what we need to do to, to do the best for the river. So you're dealing with multiple states, federal government, and that's on top of the state governance and everything else. I mean, it's not the only river basin commission there is in Pennsylvania. Correct. But is this... How is it sort of this sort of separate quasi-government that people don't really even know about? Well, you know, when you think about the Delaware, it forms the boundary all the way down, first between New York and Pennsylvania, then Pennsylvania, New Jersey, then Delaware and New Jersey. So it really is a shared river. And the states have to work together to look at water quality standards, water withdrawals. You can't do it from one, one location. And so what DRBC tries to do is not duplicate what the states do, but really look at a 
basin-wide perspective, a cumulative perspective, you know, what what is it on the watershed basis, not on the state boundary basis? So what is facing, what's the Delaware facing? Because I mean, as you said, it's a very diverse waterway that people can go from sort of the natural recreation area of the Delaware Water Gap to Delaware Bay and everything. What There's got to be a whole variety of issues. How do you juggle those? There's there are an incredible variety of issues from um, cold water fisheries up in the upper basin actually produced by discharges from the New York City reservoir um, to how to maintain the really good water quality up there. You know, how do you keep the clean water clean? And DRBC does have a what's called a special protection waters program where instead of when you think of standards of water quality like dissolved oxygen of four milligrams per liter, this is existing quality. No measurable change to existing quality. So it's a really high bar, which is really exciting. And as you come down the river into the estuary, you know, it has been a working river, so it has legacy issues. Um, there's been a major initiative to clean up PCBs, uh, which have come from numerous sources, polychlorinated biphenols. And um, there, the, the problem is that you can't eat the fish because of the toxicity caused caused by by this, um, and it was a wonderful effort working with the estuary states, two EPA regions, EPA headquarters, uh, resource agencies, to come up with a program that, knowing it'll take 25, 30 years to clean it up, um, setting the bar to get a water quality standard that when we meet that, you will be able to eat all the fish in the bay. And um, you gotta and, catch and, uh, them first. You gotta catch them first, <clears throat> and uh, a pathway to get there. So that that was pretty significant. Well, so you've gone from DRBC, which is sort of this regulatory to the Academy of Natural Sciences, which is a sort of erudite, ivory tower sounding thing. And how, how, what's the world like? What's the difference? Because you're still doing the Delaware. It, it's been a interesting and, and wonderful transition. Let me let me give you a little background. When I was in graduate school at University of Pennsylvania, uh, my mentor was Dr. Ruth Patrick, and now I work at the Patrick Center. So I'm sort of coming back home again. And if you don't know Dr. Patrick, she was a woman who started doing ecological work in the 1940s and really established that you can learn so much more looking at the critters, the algae, the macroinvertebrates, the fish, than just looking at the chemistry. And so that's the legacy of the science at the academy. I have found a really interesting difference from working top-down for over 19 years with the state of Pennsylvania and and then DRBC to working bottom-up with numerous non-government organizations. And there are certain things government does really well I mean, to manage point sources, to set water quality standards, to look holistically at how water needs to be allocated among you know, what New York City takes, what Philadelphia gets, but then things like really changing land uses and how do you regulate non-point sources, runoff from suburban communities, runoff from agricultural lands, storm runoff from agricultural lands. How do you protect these forests that are so critical to maintaining or improving water quality in those high water quality areas? Um, most forests in the Delaware are privately owned. So it's, um, 
you know, it, it takes organizations that can really work with these forest owners or, or farm owners uh, to understand what needs to be done with their farms. So there's there's two very different roles, and I'm hoping that government and the NGOs can work closer together so we really have a complete complete picture on the Delaware. Well, and one of the things I forgot to mention at the top was that you were also regional director for DEP's Southeast Office. Correct. Correct, yes, as a regulator there as well. So long history there in government. I always wanted a, a bumper sticker. Have you reg- have you hooked your regulator today? <laughs> I never got yeah. it made, but divers would like that one too. But that's a, that's a, <laughs> it's a scuba joke. Uh, so what's happening now? The Delaware's getting a whole lot of attention. I mean, there's the Delaware River Watershed Initiative. Uh, you've even got maybe some actors who are paying attention to it and doing other parts. Is there a lot going on? There is a lot going on, and it's it's exciting because the Delaware has always gotten ignored. You look at the money going to the Chesapeake, money going to the Hudson, money going to the Great Lakes, and the Delaware, because it has sort of maintained its quality, while it has issues, there are a number of smaller issues that are really going to be its downfall, if there is a downfall, and not, you know, one big, easily seen problem. And so federal dollars have not come easily to the Delaware. So our hope is that with this Delaware River Watershed Initiative, bringing 50 NGOs together, working on the ground to help water quality and uh, the whole uh, health of the river, um, will help others bring a spotlight to the Delaware and bring other dollars knowing what an incredible resource it is to the Mid-Atlantic area. And going back to something you were talking about earlier, I think, too, for the Delaware, the difference between sort of conservation and restoration, that you've got these very different pieces in there and that it takes different skills probably to do that as a core piece, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, restoration is you already have a water quality problem. And so how do you work with the landowners that are already there doing things on the land, whether it's, you know, a suburban subdivision or a uh, farmer, you know, out in Berks County, to help them understand that they can still do what they need to do, but do it in a way that also protects the river. On the um, protection side, it's how can we work with landowners that have forested riparian areas, you know, forested areas along the stream or or, uh, up in the headwaters, that it's really important to both maintain and manage those forests because they are so critical, especially now that we think of climate change, you know, forests for mitigation, soaking up that, that CO2, but also for adaptation in that if we know we're going to have more intense storms, um, having those uh, vegetated buffers just really do a lot to slow down the floodwaters. They soak up nutrients and uh, they provide shade for the stream, so they're very valuable places to keep. Well, you said the magic words, climate change. You know, everywhere, it's, you know, it's the existential And I like to issue. say that word. You like to say, that's fine, that's great. But you also have been participating. Um, you were in Paris for COP21. Yes. Uh, what was, how did you get to do that, and what was that like? It was, it was and what was, just, what was COP21? Also, at Drexel, I head up the Environmental Studies and Sustainability Program, and Drexel offered eight of us to go to the uh, climate change negotiations in Paris. 
And I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, they have council of, of parties every year, but every five years it's, it's more significant. And this was a significant one. And the idea is to bring all the countries together. There are 195 countries there to really look at what needs to be done globally for climate change. And what was so exciting this year was that instead of trying to do things top-down and have a sort of regulatory approach, um, which a lot of countries just couldn't agree to, including the U.S., to do it bottom-up and have each of the 195 countries do their own plan on what could be accomplished. And there was a lot of peer pressure. There was one country that could have done a lot more and their plan was sort of skimpy. And the other countries got together and said, come on, guys, you know, up the ante. And it, and it worked. So it's not as much as some environmental folks want who want a, a carbon cap, global carbon cap, but we just can't get there now. And from my past experience, knowing how hard it is to get five parties to agree at the DRBC, to get 195 countries to all agree that climate change is an issue now and we need to do something about it. It was really exciting. And um, the other thing, there were over 35,000 people there, and there were meetings about the value of forests, meetings about oceans. And one of the most critical things was that, like with um, the value of cities and what sub-national groups are doing, there's there's an economic change. There was a real optimism there that, you know, we need to turn our heads and look at the economic opportunities of not only the fuel sources, renewable fuel sources, but the way we way we live. We can have better lifestyles with less energy. You know, how do we design buildings? How do we design cities? How do we design communities and connections? And it's just it's really exciting, especially from a planner like me. How do you translate that back to Philadelphia, to Pennsylvania? I mean, is it is it getting translated back? Well, I, I think it is. Um, you know, we have a really strong Office of Sustainability. Uh, there's a lot of interest in both uh, renewable energy sources and looking more closely at how buildings are designed. I mean, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, but um, you think of vulnerable resources, like, you know, where where are our... Uh, water pipes. Where, where, are, where do the subways run? You know that uh, uh, the tunnels might flood, like they did up in New York and Sandy, and and those things are being looked at. So both trying to reduce the um, harm in the future, but also do reduce the level of climate change impact. So you were there with thirty thousand plus people in Paris, and you're also dealing with issues with solitary kayakers on the, the <laughs> Delaware. How do you make that connection? Do we need to make that connection? Is it being made between them so that the kayaker understands the needs of the 30,000 and vice versa? I think that's one of our toughest jobs that, you know, the science of climate change is pretty well understood. I mean, there's still a lot more science to do, but it's the sociology of climate change that we really need to work on. And just environment in general. You know, how, how do people fit in a natural world and how do we educate them that, um, you know, what they do really makes a difference because it's, it's up to us now. You know, it, it's, it's us that have to really make the change. Are we going to do it? Yeah, we're going to do <clears throat> it. And it, that's, that's sort of the, the gung-ho American will get it done, give us a problem 
answer with which I don't disagree. So as a river rat, I'm going to switch here. What are you doing these days as a river rat? Ah, uh, uh, you'll find me on the water any any chance I get. My husband and I met sailing when we were teenagers, and so that's still our sport of preference. So we have a boat down on the Chesapeake. Sorry, Delaware, but <laughs> sailing's better on the <laughs> yes. Chesapeake. Um, and we do have kayaks. Uh, you know, we uh, we do like the water. So what's so this is a. You know, working in the environmental field, thinking about climate, and then going out and enjoying or turning on lights or doing something, you know, driving to boats, and I'm guilty too. Yeah. What do we need to do to really change that behavior, that sociology part you were talking about? So that, you know, for one, that we don't feel horribly guilty every time we turn on the lights, but at the same time, we're cognizant of what's going on. Yeah. I think... Um it's, it's some system changes. I mean, we're never going to um, have Americans or, you know, or the citizens um, not want to go on escape trips where you have to go by car and you can't get there by mass transit. But if we make mass transit better, if we do get, you know, lower, lower fuel-consuming cars, um, if we entice people with having opportunities closer closer by. I mean, with the trails and the circuit that's being developed in this area, what, 750 mm-hmm. miles is the target? Yeah. I mean, that will be a huge region to uh, stay close by. So just lots lots of things. There's no silver bullet, but there's a lot of things we can work on. And what's the Academy's role? What's the Academy's role? Um, you know, I think it's really important as we do this work that there's a strong science backbone. Because if we're going to influence people, we're going to have to be able to say that, you know, this is, that there's reasons for doing this. And we've, you know, been monitoring or, or you know, we've, we've done the analysis that if you change your lifestyle this way, it really could be better for you lifestyle-wise, but it would be a huge uh, Im- improvement for, for nature. So you've got to have that science behind it. But it, the academy is also a ed- place of education. I mean, one of the reasons I was a little late today was trying to get through the fields of kids there looking at the, uh, the new dinosaur exhibit. Um, so how do, you, how do you get people you know, getting into those places like the academy to learn their role in nature and uh, how things work together. So there's education, there's science, there's advocacy. And you have had a role in not as much advocacy maybe, but how do those work together, the science to the education to the advocacy? Are there there boundaries for the science world that they can't really pass? Ah, Well, you know, scientists like to have solid answers, and they don't like to get in the the areas of gray. But unfortunately, the world is sort of a gray world. There's not a lot that you can set black and white. So we we need to have translators, and we need to take the science where you know the scientists want to have their information in peer-reviewed journals, and bring it down to levels that people can understand. And there's something some of the federal agencies are saying now is, you know, embrace uncertainty. And it's sort of hard to do, but when you're looking at what's coming at us these days, there's a lot of uncertainty. 
So how can we base it on the science we know, but also build in some factors to give us a little more buffer? Um, for instance, going back to DRBC, you know, there's all kind of information and operation manuals on uh, what to do for uh, when floods happen, what to do when droughts happen. But they're all based on the drought of record in the 1960s or the flood of record in the 1950s. And so if we get the big one mm -hmm. uh, that some of the federal agencies say is, you know, we don't know when, but it's coming, you know, we'd be prepared for that. And so we, we really need to push the boundaries a little bit. And, um, you know, going back to the science, I think there's sort of new generations of scientists that are not just looking at, you know, one species or one small niche, but looking more holistically at how things fit together and more of the, the holistic uh, ecology, which is what we need now. So you're not, you're not out there screaming, the sky is falling. I think, I mean... I, I'm not well. Um, I, I I have some pessimistic uh, presentations on <clears throat> what's coming at us, but then I like to really put it in context that we still have room to do something about it, and that's the important thing. Uh, but you look going back to the Delaware again. I mean, we've got sea level rise coming up from the ocean that not only can affect lands that may be underwater, but can affect Philadelphia drinking water supply and New Jersey drinking water supplies. But we have potential more intense storms coming down the river and, and also droughts. So when you put that all together, it really changes the whole management plan. So we need, we need to be working together, government and others, to really think about what our game plan is. And that's been a little slow because the funding hasn't been here. When do people realize how important, based on what you said, sort of the, the Delaware is in many ways the lifeline for not only Philadelphia but a lot of other areas. Do people realize that? Do they know the river's there? Do they know what it means? Unfortunately, I don't think so. You know, when you get down into the estuary and bay, it has wonderfully contiguous wetlands, just, you know, a ring of wetlands, which is great for the environment, but it means people can't get to the bay uh, very easily. It's not like um, the Chesapeake where you can go to Annapolis or go to St. Michael's and you know be right there. So it's hard to get connected. Um, and I think people sometimes forget about what a great resource we have upstream. So you know a lot of New Yorkers come across, but um, you know Philadelphians need to get up there more. Because <laughs> I mean it's a gorgeous it's a gorgeous watershed in many different ways across. Thank you so much for doing this. It's greatly appreciated. Again, Carol Collier with the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University in Philadelphia and longtime protector of the Delaware and I think continuing that role for some time. So thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you all for listening and pay attention for upcoming episodes. Thank you. Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. The views expressed by guests and even by the host are not necessarily those of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Our thanks to Regan Curry, who produces the show for us, and also to M Sound Recording Studios, who provides us with studio space in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Check them out. It's a great facility if you need recording work. And look for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council at www.pecpa.org and find many of our projects and policy work there. Thanks for listening.